0: Just a few words before we start this episode. Gilles, who is interviewed here, has been laid off since I recorded this. And the New York compost project for which he worked is going to be terminated on May 4th. However, his spirit is still high. I am doing okay, he wrote me. I was laid off last month, but I received my first employment check today, he said. I am blessed beyond words to have my community garden to go to and to be outside in the sun and soil basically whenever I want. On my side, I've been sheltering in place with my wife and three daughters. We never expected our 21-year-old to be living with us again, so we are actually enjoying this extra time with her. I hope that you are all well. Please stay home and stay safe. If you're tired of arguing with strangers on the internet, try talking
1: with one of them in real life.
0: Welcome to Back in America, the podcast. I am Stan Bertolo and this is Back in America. I'm on the phone with Gilles Lopez, the founder of Smiling Hogshead Ranch, an urban garden in Queens, New York. The Smiling Hug's Ranch started nine years ago as a guerrilla garden on a set of abandoned railroad tracks. After many back and forth with the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, they managed to secure a lease. Today, the ranch is an agriculture farm and community garden by day, a social club and a cultural venue. Gilles, I've read that you see the more important effects of community gardens as being psychological, offsetting mindsets of commodification and enhancing the idea of a community. The coronavirus is divesting our economy, deeply impacting our way of life and putting a stop to production and consumption. It is a costly reminder that in order to survive, our communities must transition to a more resilient model. Thank you for accepting to share your experience with us, and welcome to back in America.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm uh, I'm glad to be here. It's an interesting time that we live in. It's uh, thank you for inviting me to the show today, and um, it seems to be an especially uh, prescient moment to be having these conversations. There's shutdowns of of transportation systems. We're being encouraged to. to stay where we are, uh, to, to keep a distance from one another. Um, we're living in, uh, in the middle of a pandemic.
0: How does it affect your your, your life?
1: I'm, I'm working from home now. I work for the New York City Compost Project, hosted by Big Reuse. So I work for a nonprofit that's contracted with the City Department of Sanitation at New York. And um, any office work that I have to do, uh, I'm no, no longer going into the office. I'm working from home. I still have uh, physical work that I have to do, taking food scraps and transforming them to rich, uh, nutritious, organic material, finished compost, and uh, collecting the, the organic the, the kitchen scraps from the public. So putting out bins in public locations, uh, and, and um, we usually staff those, but I've been taking precautionary measures and kind of like avoiding a little bit, avoiding like standing a little bit further away from where people actually are depositing their food scraps. Um, and, uh, all of like, I'm also a public, uh, environmental educator and all of my programming have been canceled. I usually teach at libraries at, in gardens and, um, in schools and everything's been canceled for the next m- month. Uh, and I, I foresee that they will be canceled, uh, further out than that. We're trying to, um, figure out how to continue to, to, to meet our, our program goals and, educate people about the importance of compost we're talking about potentially making videos or um i we, we don't even know
0: yeah i definitely changed everything about our life and we'll we'll come back to that during the interview let's start with uh, maybe introducing yourself can you tell me a, a bit more about so you spoke about your work your family your patient. you know what makes you happy what makes you fearful who are you
1: i'm um Middle-aged white guy living in New York City. Um, I have uh, English, Irish, Filipino, and Mexican lineage. Um, I was born in Louisiana, down on the bayou, to a fellow from L.A., Latino man, and my mother is from Mississippi mostly. And um, we lived there for a little while. My parents uh, ran a bakery in Louisiana. My parents split when I was young. I moved with my mother to live with my grandparents in Mississippi, and I grew up there in Mississippi with the white side of my family. And I would go to LA every once in a while and visit my dad and uh, the the black and brown side of my family. I graduated college with a degree in landscape architecture uh, from Mississippi State University. I soon after got married. Um, we had a child, and we moved to Florida. I guess I could mention that I'm not the biological father of my daughter, Anya, and she's 15 years old right now, about to turn 16, but I am on her birth certificate and we still have a loving relationship. Um, Me and her mom split when she was about three and a half years old Um, during the 2008 recession. I lost my job. The marriage kind of fell apart. I ended up also losing my home and uh, eventually moving to New York City in 2010. And uh, while here, I was working as a construction manager for the Million Trees NYC project and doing various other stuff. And I I ended up staying here and I I made this my home and I'm really excited to still be here.
0: That, I think, is a a very good transition, right? Because 2010, 2011 is when uh, this project, this garden urban project started. Can you... Can you take us back to this day? What happened? How did you discover the the railroad tracks uh, on which yes. you mentioned that the garden started?
1: Yeah. So as I mentioned, I, I moved to New York City in 2010. I was brand new to the city. I knew nothing about the city. I was living out in Flushing, Queens. And uh, I was moving around the city, meeting new people, going to different events. And I decided that I really I kind of fell in love with Western Queens. I didn't know the terrain, uh, but I did know that I wanted to garden. I was gardening in Central Florida, and it was something that was I was heavily involved with helping start community gardens, advocacy to get um, it make it legal for people to grow food-producing plants in their front yards. Um, these sorts of things, teaching uh, workshops um, about organic gardening and permaculture. So I didn't have a place to garden in New York City, and that was a really important thing for me. I started looking at community gardens and trying to find a place where I could grow, and all of the uh, community gardens had a waiting list of uh, a year and a half, two years, and more, Um, especially in the area that I had uh, relocated to in Astoria. There was really only one community garden that I could really find, and it had a long waiting list. I was also all around the city seeing vacant lots everywhere, and I didn't understand how there could be so few community gardens with such long waiting lists and and people not starting new community gardens with all these vacant lots. Uh, of course, that's a radical way of looking at things. And I am a radical. So I decided instead of putting my name on a waiting list to um, talk to one person that I had met who I thought might have radical tendencies as I. And we met uh, in the dead of winter in late 2010. We identified a dozen different sites we did some deep research over that winter. We went down to the property tax assessor's office downtown uh, New York. We looked at Oasis Maps, which is a map that tells us about tax information and land use and all the things in the city. We looked at Google Maps and just tried to find green spaces to, to see this. We, used, we jumped on our bikes and walked over to the sites and looked at them. Um, we narrowed the list down to, to three or four and, and did that. We looked at them, and, and this one in particular had no fence. There was no sign saying posted, no trespassing, keep out. Um, it was big. It was out of the way. Um, there was no plans for development. The MTA, the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, owns the land. They run the trains and buses, and, and they weren't using the land. It was decommissioned tracks for a long time. Uh, and we got together. We decided to move forward a little bit, and uh, we took some soil tests. And once those soil tests came back, we put a call out to more people. Again, I didn't know that many people, especially people that were willing to start a guerrilla garden and do this direct action of um, occupying, trespass, trespassing and occupying land illegally. Um, so they it was mostly them putting a call out to their friends. We ended up with um, 11 people that came out that day, that first day. We looked at the soil tests. We talked about it. We looked at the site. We talked about it. We talked about the legality. We talked about the the risk involved with invest, like putting our money down to, to, to buy materials and supplies needed to do the work that we wanted to do in the time, um, and just the real reality that we could get in trouble. We could get fined. We doubted that we would go to jail, but we um we we could easily have get kicked off the land and all the resources that we put into it be lost or squandered. Um, and we decided that we were okay with that, and we moved forward with that project, and we kept it. Very underground and um, a secret for the first year and a half.
0: And how could it be a secret? I mean, you are in New York. There are millions of people all over the place. Yeah. How did nobody see you?
1: So one of the great things about the site that we chose is in an industrial business zone. The zone is... um, it's not a neighborhood. People don't live there. It's all industry. There's a couple schools nearby, but every on the weekends, when we were primarily available to do the work, there was nobody there. And on top of this, it was an interesting topographic site. There's a railroad track running between the sidewalk and the main garden. What We've created a garden area and it slopes up. So once a few weeds started growing on that in the spring, we could be behind that little slope. And if anybody passed by, we could just like crouch down towards the ground. They didn't even see us. Um, now there is directly next door, the Queens County property clerk, which is a New York city police department property. They have the, the New York city contraband property clerk right behind it. So there's, there's actually during business hours, a lot of undercovers, a lot of detectives. There's a lot of cops around. Uh, we were a mostly white group and we did get stopped by the cops a few times. They didn't really even get out of their car. They would like, Tweet their alarm! Whoop, whoop. Hey guys, come get over here. What are y'all doing? We walk out to the middle of the road and meet them. Like, what are you guys doing over here? You know, this is a dangerous area. We're like, oh, it's neighborhood beautification. You know, we have our shovel in our hand and you know a bare root plant or something with us, and um, they'd just laugh and kind of like shrug us off and be on our way, um, be on their way. So that was that was definitely a, a exercise of um, flexing our privilege with the police during that time. Um, and uh, some of us understood what we were doing with that. And some of us did not. I was one of the people that did not understand fully what was going on at, in, the, in those moments. Like I, I didn't understand that because I have white skin, the cops passed us by. We did the, our soil tests and we found that um, the soil was really actually quite clean. Um, considering it's in an industrial area in New York City, this post-industrial society. It was used as railroad tracks all this time, and there was really not much else happening on the site.
0: And you were using the soil that were there, right? You were not bringing any more soil or any... No.
1: Yeah, we we planted in-ground those first years. Um, We we were okay doing that because of the soil tests. Um, It looked pretty good for the soil, but we also uh, want to Uh, demonstrate what it looks like to uh, work with, because most of the people that visit us do have contaminated site soils and we want to demonstrate what it looks like to, um, to mitigate contact with contaminants and to remediate uh, the contaminants in place. Um, So we do practice uh, best management practices for soil contaminated sites. And in Um, a
0: nutshell, how do you do that?
1: Well, um, we put mulch down everywhere, uh, that, you know, whenever the the main way that you come in contact with, um, heavy metals and contaminants in soil is, uh, through gardening is by, um, gardening on dry, dusty days and inhaling it. Um, so if you put mulch down, then, uh, that, that limits that, um, also, uh, Putting, building raised beds. We've built a series of raised beds. Not all of our garden is raised beds, but we do have a series of raised beds. Um, and we know that uh, through scientific inquiry, we've discovered that of the parts of the f- plant that you eat, the root, the fruit, or the shoot, the f- uh, shoot, the leaves, and the stalk are most likely to uptake contaminants. So any leafy greens and stalk plants that we are growing, uh, we grow in our raised beds. Um, and we'd also grow most of our root crops in our raised beds, um, and leaving, uh, the fruit bearing crops to the in-ground, uh, beds that we have.
0: So you were 11 at the time, uh, where you, you were cultivating that, that garden. Was it, what was the purpose of it? What did you do with the food you were growing?
1: Um, The purpose was to feed ourselves. The purpose was to bring ourselves closer to the source of our food. The purpose was to provide ourselves with organic food that didn't have pesticides on it. Um, These were the purposes. The purposes for me also were to, you know, as a new person that was new to New York city to start building a community that I, that I could be in and be a part of um, that, that was focused on these things. Um, The city has a ability to spin us really far out of, um, You know, uh, when you start focusing on growing food, another byproduct of that is like most people aren't going to travel from like all far far corners of the city to, you know, come on a regular basis to weed and water the garden. You want somebody local. You want a place local. So uh, I, I find that the garden often provides a community of people that are local. When so many other of my social networks in New York City aren't based on any physical thing. You know, I find that I have friends that are so far flung that I can't just like walk out my door and like go down, down and and meet them, Um, which I'm finding, you know, it's particularly important right now. You know, I have a lot of friends that, you know, I I can talk to on the phone, maybe video chat with, and I have a handful of friends that I can text. I can say, hey, you want to go for a walk? well, you walk towards me, I'll walk towards you. We'll meet in the middle and we'll walk around the neighborhood and discuss, you know, life and, and we'll see each other and we'll stay six feet apart, but we'll, you know, we'll be able to see one another in in real time. And like, this is, I think this is really important right now in this, in this time of social distancing after um, decades really of ideological distancing. um, I really hope that we can come out of this and, and this virus is, strong medicine and that we can take it and learn some lessons and come out the other side closer uh, emotionally and closer spiritually to the people who who are in our lives whether we un- we realize that our neighbors are in our lives or not here in new york city we we know so many people but rarely do we know the people that live on our block right
0: i mean let's go back a minute to uh sure so until now you were illegal somehow you managed to get a lease um, yes. How again? How did that happen, and and what did it change for you? Uh,
1: I'll I'll backtrack a little bit to answer that too. Uh, we started in um, early spring 2011, late winter really, uh, cultivating the ground and the soil and getting our crops in and starting composting. And um, as you know, Occupy Wall Street started in um, late, uh, well, fall of 2011. So, we started the garden about 11 or six months before Occupy Wall Street. I met a lot of people in Occupy Wall Street. One of the people that I met just after Occupy Wall Street, actually, um, her name was Paula Siegel, and she was a land use uh, lawyer. And um, she had started this thing called 596 Acres, which uh, helped map city owned property in in New York City and helped people gain access to the land. to start community gardens mostly, but for whatever whatever they wanted to do. And I told her, I said, you know, I've done this. I've already started the community garden. We are not in, co- in communication with the people, the officials that own it. It's not the city, it's the MTA. Um, but they're going to find out one day. And when they do, I'm going to get in touch with you. And sure enough, um, in the summer of 2012, which was a year and a half after we started, I got a phone call on my personal cell phone. I don't know how folks got my number still to this day, I don't know, but they called me. And um, it was a, a fellow from the real estate division of the Long Island Railroad Metropolitan Transportation Authority. And he said, what the fuck <laughs> are you doing on our land? Uh, and it did not start well. I was, I was having to, to be a little apologetic. And, uh, tra- and, and he was really kind of, I did not, I thought we were going to get kicked off the land. The first 15 minutes of that call was not good. But eventually, you know, I, I was patient and um, I'm, I have a college education in landscape architecture. I have architect and urban planning friends. I know how to talk. I know how to use my words. And I have patience. I'm an I'm a even-headed guy. And um, I spoke to him. I, I, I wrote out the difficult conversation. And, I, and finally, I said, hey, listen, you know, we didn't ask permission. You're right. We knew that you wouldn't give us permission. And now we're asking for your forgiveness. And um, I think that's a powerful thing today, um, especially with bureaucrats. Bureaucrats live within, they work within a system of hierarchy. and And it's important to maintain that, you know, so that we can get stuff done in our society. But this individual, remember, this was 2012. This was at the peak of, you know, every hipster that was moving to Brooklyn wanted to start a community garden. Like it was so, like, not just community garden, but urban farming. Like, ooh. Like, it was so cool and hip at the time. So he had heard of this. I stand on the shoulders of giants, not with urban farmers and hipster herb- urban farmers, but Hattie Carthen from, the, from Brooklyn, who had started a block association based on the fact that she wanted more trees. And there's a community garden, an urban farm in Brooklyn now called the Hattie Carthen Garden. Liz Christie, who started Green Gorillas in lower Manhattan. Um, the folks up in the Bronx who, who converted vacant rubble lots when the Bronx was burning. Um, and taking all these people in New York City, primarily women of color, working to reclaim their, their neighborhoods from the powers that are divesting from them and actively discriminating against these folks. I stand on the, the shoulders of these giants. And I didn't realize it as much at the, at the time, but now I do. And this fellow had heard about urban gardening and community farming. And he was like, you know, this is interesting. I could never, like, talk to my supervisors and get this to actually happen here. But you know what? you're already doing it. So maybe, maybe just maybe I can um, figure out how to let you continue doing it. So he actually cobbled together some, commu- uh, some garden license agreement, and it was in my inbox by the end of that day. Whoa. And yeah, it was pretty amazing. And um, I was kind of shocked, you know, it was really fast and everything. And it was like 20 pages of legal lease. And the first line said, Gil Lopez hereby enters into this agreement with the New York, New York Transportation Authority, blah, blah, blah. And it was, you know, a, it would have been a lot, lot of liability for me. Um, I, I got in touch with my other, you know, 10 other garden members. The 11 of us looked it over and we said, um, being the kind of like proto-anarchists um, that some of them were, they were like, hell to the nah. We ain't signing this. We're not entering into an agreement with the state or this huge authority. This is not happening. No. Um, Yeah. Yeah, of course. So, um, I mean, what do do you expect? We have a bunch of guerrilla gardeners who are there. Why are we there? We're there to grow food for ourselves. Are we there to to start um, negotiating with the state? No, that's not our stated intention. We have a very simple intention dig in the soil, plant seeds and harvest things and eat it together. Um, we also, you know, that first year, I will say that we gave a lot of food to the Occupy kitchen. Um, but the 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 matter was that we had this um, big legal thing happening now. Uh, and we we expected something like this to happen, but we didn't really plan for it that well, but we handled it well enough. We basically sat on it. I would, Address crowds of people that showed up to help us during a work day and say, Hey, thank you for coming. We're all trespassing here. We're all participating in direct action. We're creating the world that we want to see. Everybody, most everybody was like, Yeah, right on, you know, radical. And some people were like, Yo, what are you, group of white people, doing bringing my black or brown butt out here and risking some sort of legal repercussions? That's not right. And some people were like, hey, you know, I, I teach at a school, and I would love to bring my students out, but I'm not going to bring my, my class out to some illegal situation. I had one one friend who brought one of their um, colleagues, and they worked for a nonprofit organization that works with formerly incarcerated people, and does they have a specific green jobs training program. And this woman told, said to me, I would love to bring one of our classes out here and learn from you guys, but... I can't put them in that situation.
0: Yeah, it has to be legal.
1: Yeah. So, you know, we we take we take feedback. We accept and incorporate feedback. That's one of the permaculture principles. Eventually, we decided to go ahead and and move forward with entering into this garden license agreement. The MTA refuses to call it a lease because that would give us Certain rights we needed to form a nonprofit organization so that we could enter into the agreement. Um, there was a lot of stuff involved, and we entered into that agreement in um, the spring of two thousand and fourteen Wow and we had a big ribbon cutting ceremony down at the garden. I think we had almost a hundred people that came out.
0: so to sum it up, uh, after started this uh, urban garden as a illegal trespassing project on a MTA ground, you managed to secure, uh, you know, a legal right to, uh, to to garden on this, uh, on this land. Uh, The project grew and you started to have an impact on on your local community, which was, you know, from the start, what you were trying to do, not only grow food, but create a sense of a community. How do you think an urban garden actually do that?
1: A lot of the, urban communities are actually disjointed. People are brought together by music or by ideas and they can meet at a central location that has nothing to do with their physical location in the city where they live. With a garden, it's it's often, you know, you want to be close to your garden. You don't want to have to get on the train for an hour and go to your garden on the weekend. You want to be able to go out your house and walk down and, and get to the garden really quickly. So um, community gardens actually necessitate kind of that the people actually live nearby. So we're talking about a community of neighbors in a place where usually a community doesn't refer to a physical location. So I think that's a, a really important distinguishing factor. You also have this with community supported ag- agriculture distribution po- points, with library communities, um, and to some degree with school communities, but not so much because childrens are bussed all over the city, but um, I think having uh, communities that are really focused on locality and and being geophysically close to one another are important. And um, I think they're important exactly because of the time that we're in right now.
0: You were saying this is especially important in the time we are today. And jumping on that, would you think that community garden help us build more resilience and transition toward creating a resilient community.
1: Yes. In, in being physically close, that's one key to resilience. Um, you can't be resilient with people who are miles away, especially in times of catastrophe when the transportation systems, maybe even the telecommunication telecommunica- systems are down. It's just impossible. you know? So you need a, a network of people who live close together that know one another and trust one another. Trust is one of the biggest things that we lack in today's society. We don't trust the people that we live next to. We don't trust the people that we pass by on the streets on a regular basis. We don't know them. It's not that they're bad people, we just don't know them. But when we start to garden with people, we start to understand them. We might have our differences and we can start to understand what our differences are as opposed as opposed to like being repelled because we also understand the the things that we have in common. We both enjoy good food. We both Enjoy like growing our food from that seed. We want to learn. We're connected to the earth. We all we start to understand that we're all connected to the earth, and that we can get over whatever ideological differences we may have. Like um, having having this trust and having this basic inherent relationship with the with other human beings is really important in these times when um, fear is driving a lot of our decisions. When, f- when we let that fear drive our decisions, we make irrational decisions. We make we make decisions that aren't based on love. And it, it further puts a wedge between us. So I think that community gardens are of most importance in creating a, a, a close physical community of people that understand the motives of one another and outwardly express those motives to all the rest of the neighbors that might not be p- participating. We have a lot of people that love our garden that considered themselves a brown thumb so they haven't joined as a member but they come to our events we have we have a weekly potluck during the warm warm months you know every uh last year it was wednesdays this year it's going to be tuesdays we get together after work we do a little garden work and some people just kind of like take care of the kids and um some people prepare a little bit of food everybody brings a little bit of food and we have a potluck dinner right before sunset. And sometimes we sit together after sunset and we just enjoy one another's company after we're done working, after we're done eating. I think this is really important. A lot of people who are not garden members are invited and do come to those events. And all of our events, we have over 70 free public events a year and we're a really ambitious garden. Not every garden has that and that's okay. Um, we, we're, we're set up in a very specific way. We also don't have a fence. At our garden. It's very unique in New York City to have a community garden without a fence. People can come really whenever they want to. We encourage people to come between sunset, sunrise and sunset. It's in a weird area, so you have to be careful. Um, and, uh, and, and people can come. They don't need to, there doesn't need to be another garden member there. People just come, hang out, sit on, sit on picnic benches, watch the plants grow, whatever it is that makes you happy. Um,
0: how yeah. big is it, and how much do you
1: produce? Um, you know, we're about, we're a little bit over a half acre, which is a large garden for New York city. Um, we're very linear. Um, so it feels kind of larger than that, uh, because you can walk through the garden for a long time. There's a lot of different areas. Um, it's kind of hard to say how much we produce, but, um, we do have a, a very extensive annual row crop area where we have tomatoes and cucumbers and eggplants and fruiting crops and leafy greens and, You know, we just celebrated nine years and we're starting on our 10th growing season. And we've been growing uh, fruit trees, berry shrubs and and vines, grape vines and kiwi vines and stuff. So we have lots of fruit and berries that become available throughout the year. And these trees, I mean, like we have a few peach trees that just produce so many peaches that we can barely keep up with them. We have to give them away to friends and neighbors. We have to encourage people to come and help us harvest.
0: How many families do you think get their fruit and vegetable from your garden throughout the year?
1: We have about 50 members and I would say, you know, about eight to uh, seven to ten of them have families mm. um, that that actually are part of the garden.
0: Gilles, a lot of people believe that in time of um, collapse, uh, big cities are the worst place to be in. Are you thinking of living Long Island cities?
1: No, I'm I'm not thinking about leaving. I I think I've made a decision a while back that um, the Hopi have a creation story, and in the end, it says that our cities of stone will be as steam, and um, I've resigned to myself to be as steam along with the city that I have embedded myself in. Um, some might think of that it's fatalist, um, but. Um, uh, the- this is, this is where I am. Okay. And these these are my people. And I feel like I have the skills and knowledge to really help people live a little bit better and easily right now. And yeah. I'm going to stay here for them.
0: Good, good. A question I forgot to ask, but which is important, I think Do you experiment with permaculture in your garden.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, permaculture is, you know, this idea of a permanent culture or a permanent agriculture. There's a simple concepts based on um, Earth care, people care and future care. Uh, I think these are really important, Um, you know, looking at ways to um, I also want to acknowledge that permaculture is a term that was produced, created by some Aussie guys. Um, I kind of have a problem with the fact that oftentimes they take indigenous culture understandings of agricultural systems and try to implement them and just call them permaculture solutions. That's not true. Um, Milpa system is is a, a system that was derived by indigenous people. Um, all these, a lot of these systems were in, derived by indigenous people, and and we're forgetting. We've already forgotten the names, but we can go back and research that. And to continue to deny that that there was people here before us that understand our the the climate zones and the temper temperate um, attitudes, the the soil, the land, the the, the rainfall cycles to deny that people were here before us that understood these things and that we can learn from them is ignorant. Um, So I think it's important to do that. Um, That said, I live on a, on an urban ecological site. I live in a place. um, I live, work and play in in Lenape land. The uh, Canarse and Lenape were the traditional uh, custodians of the land that Smiling Hogshead ranches on during their time. It was a, um, it was a wetland. It was um, a saltwater marsh. Um, since then, the Industrial Revolution has filled that with filings from a tunnel that was dug under the East River. It turned that marsh into firm land where buildings could be built, built and industrial um, an industrial economy arose and railroad tracks were laced. Um, it's a lot different than the land that Lenape used to know. Um, it's, it's completely different. So um, I'm having to re-understand re- and relearn what, what the place is. Um, and using a design system of thinking like permaculture to understand that is a good thing. I, I was trained as a landscape architect and permaculture is one tool in my designer's toolkit.
0: So, Gilles, as we usually do in, uh, back in America, I want to ask you, what is America to you?
1: Oh, gosh, this is such a complex question. You know, I, I grew up in America, and um, my understanding of what America is has shifted over time. I was always told as a child I was so lucky to be an American, and I agree. I am, I am very lucky to be an, America, an American. Um, America, to me, is um, starts as a colonial settler state uh, that has occupied indigenous land and um, benefited greatly from the slavery of Black people that were brought in from mostly West Africa and those were the foundations and the roots of this this country. Um our our democracy was based on the Iroquois Confederacy's democracy and um it's a strong one. Uh but we've forgotten the lineage. We we are a forgetful nation and we're one that has not respected from where which from where we come. We think that we're great because of some imaginary idea of greatness inherent in the white person in the white society and white culture. The manifest destiny Um, the doctrine of discovery. These are ideas that, to me, inform America. And um, as much as I uh, am am an American and I am here, I'm not trying to like leave America. Uh, I'm not trying to make it great again, but I want America to be better. I want America to continue to strive for the ideals that it was founded under. And in order to do that, it has to remember the history. We're gonna we're gonna continue to repeat this terrible oppressive history if we don't remember it and bring it to the fore and and deal with it in a real way if we deny the roots of oppression that founded and laid the groundwork for this country and we continue to do that we're going to destroy ourselves and i believe that's what we're doing and i and to be honest i think that this epidemic is nature in a way trying to to alleviate this d- destruction that we've they laid, laid out in a global, I, I, I say that America's greatest export is culture. And this globalization of the American Western way is killing indigenous people and enslaving children and people around the world in order to, to produce commodity items for us to continue to consume and throw away and waste. This is the America that I know. And it saddens my heart greatly to be known as that American. When I travel internationally, we're laughed at we're just dis- we're we're despicable people and that makes me really sad i want to change that i want to change that from within that's one of the reasons i'm in new york city the cockpit of capitalism here in america i want to understand the tools the instrument panel of that capitalism and i want to know where i can make tweaks where i'm going to have to throw sand where i'm going to have to monkey wrench in order to break that system of oppression so that we can rise out of these ashes of uh, hateful scornful people and country and really make the change to be liberatory.
0: All right. Thank you. Thank you. And I think you contribute to doing that uh, with the garden, right?
1: I hope so. I pray.
0: Yeah. Uh, the last question I've got is, what books or movie would you recommend uh, for people to read or watch?
1: Yeah. Um, a book, um, Akwesasne, uh, Press comes out of uh, it's a indigenous uh, press and they produced a book uh, I believe is the year before I was born in 1977 um, called a basic call to consciousness. It's the Haudenosaunee's elders um, they put into words and went to the indigenous council in the in Geneva for the UN and they brought with them their indigenous knowledge and they are basic have a basic call to consciousness. I encourage everyone to read this pamphlet. It's not a full book, it's a pamphlet. We really need to understand what life on Turtle Island was before we invaded this land. And we really need to understand what the people are calling for as a as a simple means of, of moving forward on this land um, in order to, to value the sanctity of life. And we need to bring all the peoples to to the table of reconciliation. We need the native tribes to be at that table, all the sovereign nations, not just the global powers, when we're deciding how to live in a peaceful world. So I highly recommend a call to consciousness. And for movies, um, Adam Curtis is an amazing investigative journalist that has some really good a good series that came out a while back called um, Century of Self, and a more recent one I think in 2016 called Hypernormalization. These documentaries really show us how we have used war propaganda and built um, uh, media structures and um, advertising to colonize our minds and have police in our own heads. We police ourselves to continue the the destruction that was set out in this manifest destiny, in in the taking of land and enslaving of people. We do that in our own heads now. We enforce that. And I think Adam Curtis has done a good job in laying out exactly how that's been done using television and, and print and, and, and radio. And then moving on into the, the big political stage of drama uh, that we're all sucked into with this 24 hour news cycles um, in hypernormalization. So those two century of self and hypernormalization.
0: normalization. Well, Gilles, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, I appreciate
1: the time to, to speak to you. Thank you for your, your questions. I think that you're uh, doing a good thing with this podcast. and I appreciate it.